You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening. Good morning, everyone. Kurt Sumner here, host of NSPS Radio Hour. Thanks for joining us on another Monday morning. Uh, I guess, first of all, I should apologize for any who called in last week with misinformation I had provided um, because I, for, I forgot that uh, that we weren't going to do a live show last week. We have rescheduled that that you read about for October 31st, Kurt Bynum, so he'll be joining us then. Um, so with that said, today we have on the show a really good friend of mine who I've known now for quite a few years, uh, probably so long I'm and at my advanced age, Ben, I don't even remember how long, but Ben Peterson is with me today. Welcome, Ben. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for having me on. Ben is with us bright and early this morning. He's out in the state of Washington, so uh, I always appreciate it when folks on the West Coast are are able to join us so early in the morning on the show as as compared to the ones over here on the East Coast. Of course, when I have people over from, from Europe, they're about ready to go to bed by the time we talk, Ben, so <laughs> we, yeah. we kind of stretch all across the time zones here. We're, we are uh, not particular which time zone our, our folks are coming in. Uh, for those of you who may not know Ben, Ben's a licensed professional land surveyor in Washington and Oregon. Um, actually, Ben, you're... I won't say one of the few, but certainly uh, among the, the, the smaller number of people I talk to who have actually been licensed longer than I have. My first license was in 1980, so you got me beat by a couple of years in Washington. Oh, my. And there I thought I was so much older than you, so I guess maybe I'm not. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I, I got licensed very young, probably shouldn't have. Um, so they, they were foolish enough to give it to me. I was foolish, foolish enough to take it, I guess. Well, and that's that's the uh, the beginning of a lifelong endeavor when when that license comes along because we kind of if we weren't by the time we get those licenses we're addicted by that point so we're we're just, it's, we have to take our uh, injections of professional land surveying uh, weekly I suppose to make sure we stay hooked we we practice but every day <laughs> we, that's right we'll get we may learn someday but we practice all the time that's true. So you're located, what, two hours from Seattle, maybe? Or is that, no, or is no. That uh, we're, uh, we're in the town of Issaquah, good Indian name. Uh, we're about, um, we could get into Seattle in about 20 minutes. Oh, I just directly. Now we're directly east of Seattle on I-90. If you keep going, you hit Boston. Eventually. Eventually. But a lot of, a lot of cool places on the way if you do that, right? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, and maybe, well, maybe maybe that leads into our, our topic today. I guess you can get there if you rode the train, too, right? Uh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And, and I've never and that, done that, that, but I would love to. You know, me neither. I've always thought that that would be a really neat thing to do, but it, I never seem to have the time to do it. Um, you remember yeah. um, Sam Best, right, from Alaska? Yeah. Yeah, Sam, Sam was just at our meetings in, in Arizona. Yeah, I met him there. Uh, got chatted, and um, he and his wife did that a few years ago. They did the train thing across from actually from D.C. back to Arizona. I guess I'm not sure if they came. I don't think they came out. I think they flew out to Tennessee and visited Jim Boyer, and then came up to see us, and then took the train all the way back across. But that would be quite the interesting thing to do. We've We've wondered sometimes when we're on long trips to go to NSPS meetings if that would be a cool way to go. The only problem is we'd have to take off from work 
three or four days. Yeah, that's the problem. To able to, to get the yeah. trips in. It starts but, to get old after a while. Yeah, yeah, I can imagine that that it would. I, I've only ridden trains for small uh, journeys before. Uh, I mean, really small, like only you know less than a hundred miles or something. Um, but I can imagine that once you've seen um, going across the great expanse of the the mid the Midwest and out of the the mountains here in the in the eastern part of the country, or even from the from the coast. Um, it's kind of like flying in the plane. Uh, eventually, it all starts to look like. <laughs> yeah. Except, except when and if you go through the tunnels, well, which true. is the topic of our conversation today, <laughs> is, is is the tunnels. Because uh, I, I know, Ben, you and I have had conversations about this before, and in particular this past spring when I was out visiting with LSAW, and uh, we were talking about potential topics for the show, and... And we had a little conversation about tunnel work and the surveyor's role in that. Um, and so I thought it would be a really cool thing to have you talk about that to some degree, uh, as much as you like, in terms of what all is involved and how the work happens. And then share with the audience maybe some of your experiences and some of the the multiple tunnel jobs that you've done over time. And Is, is that just... just kind of frame the conversation here is that something that you looked at and said hey tunneling would be a cool thing to do or is it like a lot of surveys a job came along and then it turned out to be a cool thing to do well a little of both actually Um, tunnels have always sort of intrigued me Um, I always thought it was fascinating to go down in caves and and, uh, through tunnels I just thought it was just kind of fun and um, uh a project was kind of thrust upon me back in the 80s, a um, pretty big tunnel project right through downtown Seattle. And uh, that was kind of my first experience um, handling the surveying for tunneling. And uh, a big part of, uh, of uh, the work of a tunnel surveyor is also settlement monitoring. Uh, when you tunnel, you're disturbing the, the soil, you're disturbing the ground, and if you're going through an urban area, um, you know, they want to know about that. <laughs> yeah, they don't want to think see any 50-story uh, building story buildings uh, tipping over. So, yeah, so that's a big part of it. Um, so, uh, so that job was, uh, was like a subway kind of thing? Yeah, it was actually uh, twin uh, side-by-side tunnels through downtown Seattle. And it was a bus tunnel. It was for, uh, at the time, we didn't have light rail. Uh, it's since been converted. And it was uh, goes right through downtown Seattle. And uh, uh, there's five stations along the way. Um, and it was really sort of, the, uh, you know, the start of our light rail system with that in place. And now we're, uh, we're building out uh, in all directions. Um, I've got... We're, we're probably 30, 40 years behind the times when it comes to light rail <laughs> in terms of big cities. But uh, we're getting there. So. Well, that, that's I hadn't ever thought about what you just said, that it was a bus tunnel. Yeah. Uh, that is that is that unique? I don't know if I've ever heard of a bus tunnel before. Is that something that has happened a lot over time? No, I think it is unique. Um, I think in this particular case... Um, as I said, we didn't have a light rail system. 
throughout the, the region. And uh, traffic is always terrible here. And um, it was just getting worse and worse. And uh, the problem through downtown Seattle was that the, the, the buses were in the, in the narrow streets on the surface competing with the cars. And, it's, and, and you could virtually walk faster than the bus could travel. Well, that's, that's not a great sales point for mass transit. And so they came up with this idea for about $500 million to put the buses underground through downtown Seattle with uh, five stations that you could get off at. And uh, it is unique in that um, the buses are, are hybrids, and they, when they're out on the open road out of downtown Seattle, they are uh, diesel buses. And then when they get to the, the start of the tunnel, they switch to electric, and they've got overhead power, and while they're going through the tunnel system there, um, they, they're electric because you can't have the pollution uh, and, and the exhaust, and then uh, they switch if, if they're coming out the other end and going on, continuing on in the streets, um, then they switch back to diesel. So it is, I've never heard of another uh, municipality that does that. So um, I, that's, a brand, that's a new one on me, and it, it seems as though... Uh, if you're if you're running buses, do you need more space? I mean, do the buses? I mean, it's not it's not like a two way street or anything. The buses are all going down one tunnel and back the next or something. Or yeah, there's two. They're side by side tunnels. Yeah, yeah. So uh, yeah, they're they're going down one <laughs> one and coming back the other. And uh, you know, since then we've we've built a light rail system that also operates. And right now they're they're operating both. Um, Light rail trains and buses through the tunnel. So the bus, the buses still do that. It yep. wasn't replaced by light rail totally. No, I think they're heading that way. But um, um, you know, it all it takes is time and money. So now, is um, the is the the bus tunnels are restricted just to the downtown area? So people are going to get on those buses. I guess similar to light rail would have to come in somewhere and park. Yeah, you know, actually, I it's got to be a nightmare in logistics. You know, <laughs> I've never really invested. Yeah, I would think so. You know, I don't know exactly how it all works, but the timing's got to be just amazing. Um, you've got a, a bus that comes in from, you know, quite one of the, you know, outlying towns or something, comes in, comes in through the, into town and goes through the bus tunnel and maybe comes out the other way and goes, you know, somewhere 10 miles south of downtown Seattle. Um, and, and at the same time, you've got trains operating on the same, at least within the tunnel, mm-hmm. uh, operating in, within the, you know, the two tunnels. Uh, you know, not quite simultaneously. God, I hope not. But, uh, <laughs> so, you know, okay, so it's not as though they built new tunnels for the light rail. They're using the same tunnels. They just put rails in them. That is correct, yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. Well, They're that talking about create an building, interesting... Yeah. They're talking about building talking another about set of twin tunnels through downtown Seattle. Uh, apparently, wow. you know, the, the capacity, or they need more capacity, and it's not there right now, so... Yeah, I guess that would be a little weird if you were riding along on a bus or a train and passed the other one in the tunnel. 
Yeah, or, or it went past you, I guess, since you're going in the same direction. Uh, in the stations, you'd probably see it, but uh, yeah, um, you know, between stations, there's there are two separate tunnels, and, uh, no windows in between them. So, um, right, yeah, it is kind of weird. It's a different system. I think they are talking about, you know, now that the light rail is going, that handles a lot more people, and that is the goal. And uh, I think that sooner or later they're going to dedicate it here entirely to light rail. I suspect. And, uh, so I assume that back up to the surface. So. Some of the areas that are served outside of the the tunnel system or outside of the city, um, both the buses and the and the light rail go to those same places, or do they break off after they get out of the city and go? Down no, there? no. Um, uh, we're we're kind of limited as to where we can build light rail. Okay. Yeah. Um, it's just. Uh, a function of the geography of this region. Um, right. I hate, I hate to interrupt, Ben, but we're right at our break. Let's come back and talk about that particular issue when we come back from the first break. So we will be good. back shortly. Want to know if your Seanstead locator is still under warranty? Go to Seanstead.com and click on Warranty Finder in the lower left-hand corner. Enter your six-digit serial number, and it will tell you everything you need to know. Out of warranty? Click on Repair Department. But here's a tip. Before sending it in, pick up a $25 discount by going to Specials and Sales under the Buy Now tab at www.schonstedt.com. Quick Stakes. Does your survey supply dealer have Quick Stakes? If not, demand that they start carrying Quick Stakes. Did you know that Quick Stakes are better for your back than your local chiropractor? Lightweight and easier to use than the old heavy wooden stake. Order a sample today and prove it to yourself. Quick Stakes, your back-friendly stake. Obamacare is failing. We all know that, but you need to know why and what you can do to get us back on the right track. Visit us at ObamacareWatch.org. This is Grace Marie Turner of the Galen Institute. Join us at ObamacareWatch.org. Attention surveyors, Seanstead announces the Maggie, the next generation magnetic locator. The Maggie combines the best features of two flagship Seanstead products, the sensitivity and precision of the GA52CX and the visual display and single-handed operation of the GA92XT. Contact your dealer for details or go to www.seanstead.com. Seanstead, the best just got better. You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening. We're back with Ben Peterson talking about tunnel work, and I am now a uh, more recently informed individual with regard to light rail and bus tunnels in Seattle. I, I, I did not know that that existed, and Ben says that's probably not uh, strange that I wasn't because this is a unique situation as far as, as we know. Um, and you were you were... We were talking uh, as we went to break, and we'll catch up on this and then move on, but you were talking about limited space, limited availability, maybe even for stations or or whatever, and I guess the, the first quick question that, that came to my mind was once you get past the tunnels in downtown, say similar to here in the Washington, D.C. area, I assume they extend out into suburbia somewhere? They do. They do, and they're at grade or, or you know, elevated on a, 
uh, you know, kind of almost a monorail type system um, out beyond where they don't need tunnels. Um, uh, they're just starting. Um, the, the system right now in Seattle now runs down to the airport and actually a little further south, so you could fly into SeaTac Airport and, and get a you know get a light rail train right into downtown Seattle, um, and then on north uh, probably uh, I'm guessing about ten miles, and uh, uh, right now they are just uh, at the starting point of expanding it east across the lake across a floating bridge. Um, to Bellevue and Redmond eventually. Wow. Yeah. wow. So now, do the do the buses go those places too, or do they yeah, stop? Yeah, they they do, but they go different places, and it just yeah. is feasible to uh, you know spider the the light rail network. It'd be just so expensive. Um, so uh, you, you know, the theory is that you have these buses that feed into these light rail stations, and then people get you know make the transfer. And uh, you know, use the light rail to their to their advantage because it's it doesn't have to compete for tra- with traffic, right? So, yeah. and that part of it is similar to here, and I'm sure yeah. like many other metropolitan areas where you've got satellite stations where people drive to and either catch a bus or or sometimes exactly. actually the the buses come right by my house, for example, that take take you over to one of the one of the train stops. So. Yeah, I guess that that works too. Yeah, but we do have well, buses that do run. Uh, you know, for instance, here in Issaquah, we're we're uh, about 15 miles east of Seattle, and uh, uh, we have buses that uh, we have a transit station here that is bus only, and uh, uh, boy, that thing is full every day. <laughs> and those buses are full, and it runs. You know, it's an express. We do have HOV lanes. And uh, it runs right into Seattle and right through the downtown bus tunnels, and then I think it turns around and comes back. But um, nonetheless, and obviously the the buses and the trains share the same stations inside the tunnels. I'm not. That yes, they do, way. and the timing's got to be amazing. Oh um, yeah, I would think. So. <laughs> Especially if you have to cross the tracks getting off the bus. <laughs> oh yeah, now you don't. But uh, oh okay, well that's yeah. that's helpful, I suppose. Well, that is is indeed an, an an interesting story. I I can't imagine the the level of research and detail that one had to go through in doing the original survey work. I mean, obviously, you're not underground doing this work, but there's just so much stuff going on underground throughout cities that that must have been massive amount of work. It was, and it was, uh, uh, you know, that's the thing with tunnel. Tunnels are they're getting better. Uh, the technology, uh, the, the tunneling machines are just uh, better, more efficient. Um, I mean, they're, they used to be sort of a gamble, and now they're more of a sure thing. And mm-hmm. uh, they're just better at it. And, uh, uh, you know, tunneling is kind of the way to go in an urban area because you don't want to disrupt the surface. You can't just tear up the streets and right. create, knock down a few buildings. <laughs> so if you can tunnel underneath, um, you know, it's minimally disruptive on the surface. Let me put it that way. Um, there's still some, but uh, uh, yeah, it's, it's and, becoming and even more. even with all that, it's, 
I just gonna say, even with all that, it's still crowded as heck on the streets too. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, they're still uh, uh, they're still doing uh, soil borings and that kind of thing that they have to do in advance of of uh, tunnel operations, and and you still have stations and things like that. You have to dig down from the surface. So right, uh, there's there's still disruption, but it's a lot less than it would be uh, if you you know. Well, in the urban area, you can't expand the streets. It's simply impossible. So, right. I mean, there's nowhere to nowhere to go. Yeah, except up, and nobody wants that. You know. <laughs> right. Yeah. Does Seattle have a a, a a height restriction of any kind? Um, you know, it's it's it depends on the zoning. We have a seventy or eighty story buildings downtown. Um, mm-hmm. Well, one. <laughs> and we've got some 60s and I think a 70s, and I think there's a new one that's planned to be the tallest. So it's got to be probably 80-plus stories high. Uh, but they're, they're all clustered downtown. Um, right. And, of course, it gets less and less. You know, I know that's the great thing about Washington, D.C. One of the times I've been there, it's just pretty even, uh, at least in the central city. It's, it's yeah, nice and they have some level of height restriction. I'm not really sure what it is, but I know... Or at least that's I'm told that there's some level of height restriction there that's related to not being higher than something. Uh, yeah, I don't know what, what, what that is, but well, you've got to be able to see the Washington Monument from no matter where you are. You know, <laughs> well, that's true. Yeah, that's 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 your uh, location point. It's, it's, exactly. You can get back to the to the your Washington point around, Monument. Yeah, like the North Star. Of course, these days you can't go up and down in the elevators, so. Oh yeah. <laughs> well, they're just having continual problems with the elevators. They, really? Oh yeah, they can't. They seem to get them fixed for some reason. I mean, they they have them down, and, and people get stuck at the top and have to walk down the stairs. And is that since that earthquake? Um. Well, it certainly has been happening since the earthquake. I uh, never ne- actually that never occurred to me if the earthquake might have had an impact on that. It did have an impact on on the monument as well as lots of other things in DC. Oh yeah. Um, but I don't recall how much trouble they had with the elevators prior to that. It just seems more commonplace now for whatever reason. Uh, as a matter of fact, we were kind of talking about that the other day. One of the one of the things that they want to do with the field trip for the student competition this year, it'll be here in the D.C. area at our conference, and uh, Dave Doyle's talking about taking them down in the district and showing them some really cool stuff, and one of those cool things was the monument. And somebody said, Oh, what if the elevator's not working? <laughs> oh. so, yeah, well, um, but but those those are the kind of things that happen. You were you were mentioning another tunnel project that was an interesting one. Is Husak? Is that the right name? Yeah, that's the name of it. Um, it was a little project that I undertook uh, to. You know, historic-type subjects interest me, and I think they interest a lot of surveyors. You know, we tend to be kind of all amateur historians. We just kind of enjoy that sort of thing. And so, uh, uh, you know, one of the things I, I do, once I got involved in tunneling, I wanted to learn more. And so I just research and, and I keep, uh, keep looking for more information. I just wanted to be better at, you know, what I was doing, and I wanted to learn what the, you know, what other people were doing, too. And I wanted to understand the whole process, so I would do a lot of research. And and one of the names that would come up in in you know uh, researching some technology is is the Hoosac Tunnel in the context that 
uh, I would look up something and they would say, uh, as pioneered by the, on the Huzak Tunnel Project, you know. And I would, you know, kind of dismiss that at the beginning. Um, oh, okay, that's great. Um, and then I uh, just kept running across that name more and more, um, uh, you know, in other technology. They said, yeah, that method was uh, first used on the Huzak Tunnel, you know. And after, you, after you've seen it and heard it a couple of different times, you start to go, I better look into this, you know. <laughs> so, so I did, and... Um, and and I just got more and more interested. And in actually, there's several books on it. And uh, I I just poured through the internet on anything I could get on the Huzak Tunnel, and I got a couple of books. And and uh, no one out here would be familiar with the Huzak Tunnel, and uh, probably most of the people back there either. Um, but it was a lot. It was just a pioneer kind of a tunnel um, built in uh, started in 1850. So that was quite a while ago, and uh, uh, it's kind of planned before that. And so, just I, I did a, a historical presentation on it. And the thing is, it is a fascinating survey story, and that's got to be really intriguing. And so, uh, just to give you a little context of it, it's it's in the the northwest corner of Massachusetts, and so uh, it basically connects Boston to. Uh, the rest of New York State, the western part of New York State, and, um, and kind of the impetus for the Huzak Tunnel was the Erie Canal, which in itself was a, uh, you know, they call it an engineering achievement. I'll call it an engineering and survey achievement because uh, there was certainly a lot of surveying on it. Um, so New York State built the Erie Canal over there, and that basically connected New York with uh, the Great Lakes, and that opened up what they used to call the Northwest, which <laughs> was Ohio. Uh, right. <laughs> the Great Northwest. But there wasn't anything out there. I mean, there wasn't a whole lot of stuff out there, and uh, this just opened that whole territory out and started the whole trade and everything. And so the Erie Canal, uh, New York State built that, uh, and it was a guy named Clinton, by the way, uh, <laughs> Governor Clinton, in New York State, and uh, they started that, uh, that was about 1817 or something like that, and it's completed about 1825, and it's 363 miles long, and uh, there's still remnants of it, but basically it was the super highway of the time. It was just, an, uh, you know, a marvel, and uh, the amount of commerce that went through was just amazing, and... Uh, one of the things here, the, effect, the effects of the Erie Tunnel. So Al, Albany to Buffalo, before the canal, 15 to 45 days with eight, an eight-horse wagon. That's a, that's a, a bunch of time. <laughs> and after the canal, after the canal, it was six to seven days. Goodness. Yeah. And... The uh, the average boat carried about thirty tons, you know, barges basically that were horse drawn along the canal, and the shipping costs before the canal were about a hundred dollars a ton, and after they were about forty dollars a ton. Wow, it was uh, well, we're going to have a uh, break in a minute. Uh, here in about 
15, 20 seconds or so. So I'll, we'll stop at that point. I, as you, When you said horse-drawn, I was thinking, well, that sounds kind of like the, the canal going out of, uh, of the district, going out toward Cumberland. So it's sort of interesting. Let's go to break. We'll be right back. Okay. Attention surveyors. Seanstead announces the Maggie, the next-generation magnetic locator. The Maggie combines the best features of two flagship Seanstead products, the sensitivity and precision of the GA52CX and the visual display and single-handed operation of the GA92XT. Contact your dealer for details or go to www.seanstead.com. Seanstead, the best just got better. Did you miss a show that you really wanted to hear? All of our programs are available for download on AmericasWebRadio.com and on iTunes. You can listen to your favorite programs on AmericasWebRadio.com anytime you like. Quick Stakes is your answer to staking. Lightweight, easy to ride on, easy to use, easy to find, and won't break your back carrying them like the old-fashioned wooden stakes. Have you tried a sample? If not, get a pen and paper and write down this number, 800-438-0387, or go to quickstake.com, that's Q-U-I-K-S-T-A-K-E.com, and order your samples. Ask your surveying supply dealer for quickstakes today. Want to know if your Seanstead locator is still under warranty? Go to Seanstead.com and click on Warranty Finder in the lower left-hand corner. Enter your six-digit serial number, and it will tell you everything you need to know. Out of warranty? Click on Repair Department. But here's a tip. Before sending it in, pick up a $25 discount by going to Specials and Sales under the Buy Now tab at www.schonstedt.com. You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening. As we went to break, Ben was talking about the, the Hussack Tunnel that was built in the early, really, eight, first quarter century of the 1800s. And uh, during the break, Ben, you were talking about how they were able to accomplish this in such a short period of time, because I had made the comment that to go 363 miles in such a short amount of time seemed Herculean. And you were talking about how they leveraged resources along the way, utilizing lakes and rivers and and talking people into participating in construction. Yeah, that's basically what they did. Is they, uh, they took advantage of every waterway that was along there already and uh, just figured out how to, how to utilize it. Uh, some of the lakes, some of the rivers. Of course, a whole series of locks to, to, you know, to handle the... The grades, and um, uh, they convinced a lot of the uh, adjoining landowners, um, most of who were just farmers, that it was going to be a boom for them. They could sell their crops, and they could just load them right onto the barges and, and get them to New York, where the prices were were pretty high, and they were all going to get filthy rich. And therefore, uh, they they talked about uh, having them. Uh, most of them, they they convinced to build their own portion of the canal, you know, with with the assistance of uh, whatever the authority was that was uh, overseeing the thing. But uh, most of the farmers, they, they had the equipment, and uh, they just built their section, and uh, so on and so on. So uh, it was actually a bar. So on the, on the way in, it was raw materials. On the way back, it was whatever got made out of those raw materials serving the people back 
Out west, I suppose. Right. Yep. So, uh, you know, the, the canal turned out to be just an amazing success. And uh, so the biggest, uh, Boston is sitting there, and, and before the Erie Canal, uh, Boston and New York were about, commerce-wise, about equal. And within five years of the finish of the Erie Canal, um, the Boston economy was one-third of New York's, New York City's. Um, it probably didn't change, but, but New York jumped, you know, 200, 200 or 300% just because of the Erie Canal. So, um, so the, the politicians in Massachusetts decided, you know, whoa, um, we need our own canal. <laughs> so uh, they, they began looking at that. And uh, the geography of, uh, you know, Massachusetts is a little different, but they did manage to figure out a way they could build a canal at least over to a certain point on the uh, far west end of uh, the state of Massachusetts. But uh, then there was a mountain, a big series of mountains there. And uh, they actually looked at, uh, well, I wonder if we could tunnel through this and put a canal in there. And uh, uh, they, you know, hammed and hawed about this and tried to figure out how much it was all going to cost. And uh, then, you know, something else happened here. And uh, so right around the 1830s or so, uh, suddenly there was something called a train. And that changed everything. So trains were about to become now the superhighway. And they did for a long time. And so they changed from uh, thinking about building a canal through Massachusetts to building a railroad through Massachusetts uh, to get over to uh, New York State. Um, but the same mountain was still there. And you can't, you know, it's just too much of a hassle to go over it. So uh, they proposed this uh, tunnel through it. It's five miles. Uh, solid granite, and uh, in you know the as they most projects, they uh, great optimism. I think they had predicted. Uh, looking at notes, they figured out a cost of at least at that time of three hundred seventy thousand, possibly nine hundred twenty thousand dollars. I don't know what that would translate into today. But uh, that's quite a range. <laughs> uh, yeah, <laughs> I'd like to give. Up. Like the, this might cost a dollar, but it might cost five hundred. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's quite a range. And so, uh, anyway, they 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 finally put this together and got the legislature there in Massachusetts to kind of back it. And uh, uh, they started selling uh, some stock in the railroad and uh, to some you know, private subscribers uh, to, to finance this thing. And, uh, you know, when they finally kicked this thing off, they kind of reworked their numbers. They had this thing at about, you know, it was just under $2 million, which was a massive amount of money at the time. And they figured it would take about 1,500 days. Now, that's about, you know, what, five years? Mm-hmm. Something like that. That's more than that. That's about five years. Right. So that's pretty optimistic. Um, 
and one of the uh, one of the reasons they thought it would only take that long uh, is that they had this uh, what we would call the world's first tunnel boring machine, and it was basically it kind of looked like a, it was actually they called it the Wilson's patented stone cutting machine, and they uh, they thought, oh my God, this is just amazing. Instead of you know, hacking our way through the mountain, this thing's just going to bore its way through the mountain. Uh, nowadays, you could probably do it. But uh, back then, uh, this thing was made out of iron. Um, it was about 24 feet in diameter. It's a nice, nice-sized tunnel. It definitely will handle uh, a train. And uh, so about 1853, they, they put this thing up against the, the wall of the mountain and started in and... Uh, this thing uh, starts cutting the, the rock, and it gets, oh, it's just amazing. It, it, it cuts about 10 feet in and then stops and is stuck and is stuck. <laughs> and that's, that's the end of the story on the world's first tunnel machine. And, uh, <laughs> well, so, <laughs> now, had, had, it, had it gone to completion... Yeah. Going through the mountain, it, I assume it mean? would have come out somewhere east of where the Erie Canal goes north south. Yeah, yep, yep. So, was part of the idea to, to connect to the canal, or now that railroads came along, were they just going to bridge think, across uh, it and keep going? They were hoping to get uh, through, get that Boston to uh, Syracuse route, basically get that trade going and actually buffalo was the goal because that mm-hmm. was on the great lakes and uh, uh get that train to that mountain and get a direct line uh they were better positioned than actually new york city in terms of railroads uh, you know but everybody was in a you know railroad building frenzy and so uh, boston got on board but uh, nonetheless the uh tunnel machine didn't work and uh, so uh, they kind of went back to uh, basically giant star drills, uh, gunpowder. <laughs> so, uh, but the story of the the surveyors on this is pretty interesting. Um, when they first started out, they did not intend, they started out on both ends uh, and started uh, boring the tunnel or, you know, basically... Uh, drilling and 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 using gunpowder, uh, and then just hauling the, the 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 waste away. They did not intend to meet head on. Okay, um, they had the grades figured out, and they were they were pretty good at running uh, running grades from one side of the mountain to the other. So they kind of had it figured out at a slight angle, and then. Using the grades, they just figured that sooner or later we would intercept. It was simply too risky, and the, techno- the survey technology wasn't there to meet head-on. Nobody had any faith in that. Okay, um, you, you got to understand that steel hadn't been invented yet. You didn't have a steel tape. Um, your probably your best instrument at the time was maybe twenty-second, and you had to survey five miles across the mountain, and I'm assuming somewhere around the mountain, so for, who knows, maybe 20 miles in a traverse with a 20-second instrument and a, basically a, a 
a Gunter's chain was the best you could do. Oh, <laughs> not very good. Good luck on that accuracy, right? Yeah. So they really didn't have any faith that they could sort of aim from one end and aim from the other and meet head on. Okay. So they actually angled it a little bit, but um, um, they kind of had the, the project kind of went in fits and starts. And then uh, they've got some new management in there, and they decided to change the the eastern or the western portal and and do it head on. And uh, they they needed to overcome this uh, uh, the fact that they couldn't traverse very well. Okay, and the way that they did it is that they you know started on one end or the other, and they ran over top of the mountain on a straight line, okay? And I'm sure they did this a number of times, and they just went on a straight line over the top of the mountain, and wherever they came down on the on the west side, that's where the, the west entry was going to be, and that's how they did it. And they just would come at each other, and there was no angles involved. So it was pretty fascinating. Yeah, that would be quite an undertaking. Having having grown up in some relatively steep mountains in the in the Blue Ridge, I can appreciate the work that went into going oh, over yeah. those mountains. Oh, it was pretty fascinating, but it was pretty clever when you think about it. Yeah, it just eliminated the whole issue of, of error in a traverse by running a straight line. They actually built some towers on top of the mountain, um, and these were all in a straight line. Wow! So they would just go right over top of the mountain and then into the tunnels. And, uh, you know, they had pretty good faith that they would they would connect, at least they hoped. So that's, that's how they started out. So uh, not to not to get too far on this story, but um, uh, bottom line of it, they didn't finish this tunnel till I think it was 1875. Uh, wow. Yeah, it was on and off. Um one of the things that sort of helped them, they were originally using gunpowder, uh, not very potent, and along comes nitroglycerin, and uh, they started using that, and that was much more potent, and uh, they'd get much better progress. Uh, the other thing that came along was steel, and they could make steel drill bits, and so they could drill, uh, you know, what they would do is drill a whole series of holes in the face of of the tunnel at each end, and then uh, uh, pack it with nitroglycerin, and then run like hell. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that and would be they, a good move. Yeah. <laughs> well, sometimes that didn't, you know, they didn't run enough. Okay. Uh, part of the problem with nitroglycerin, it is so volatile. Um, it had to be. We're, we're ready to go to break again, believe it or not, Ben. Okay. <laughs> so let's do that. We'll be back in a couple of minutes. Okay. Attention surveyors. Seanstead announces the Maggie, the next generation magnetic locator. The Maggie combines the best features of two flagship Seanstead products, the sensitivity and precision of the GA52CX and the visual display and single-handed operation of the GA92XT. Contact your dealer for details or go to www.seanstead.com. Seanstead, the best just got better. Quick stakes. 
is your answer to staking. Lightweight, easy to ride on, easy to use, easy to find, and won't break your back carrying them like the old-fashioned wooden stakes. Have you tried a sample? If not, get a pen and paper and write down this number, 800-438-0387, or go to quickstake.com, that's Q-U-I-K-S-T-A-K-E.com, and order your samples. Ask your surveying supply dealer for quickstakes today. Don't be hoodwinked by the left who wants you to believe the fairy tale that we can power America on butterflies, rainbows, and pixie dust. I'm Marita Noon. Get the truth about energy on my show, America's Voice for Energy, only on America's Web Radio. Want to know if your Seanstead locator is still under warranty? Go to Seanstead.com and click on Warranty Finder in the lower left-hand corner. Enter your six-digit serial number, and it will tell you everything you need to know. Out of warranty? Click on Repair Department. But here's a tip. Before sending it in, pick up a $25 discount by going to Specials and Sales under the Buy Now tab at www.schonstedt.com. You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening. Our last segment with with Ben Peterson today. We'll finish up a little bit on the Husak tunnel, and you were talking about uh, getting out of the tunnel on time when you're using the explosives, and obviously you need to know what you're doing when you're doing that. So when we close up with uh, a little bit on the tunnel, I know you've had some experience as expert witness in trials related to surveying in tunnels. That would be an interesting topic for our, our listeners to hear about. So I will turn you loose to do, it, do that as you wish. Okay. <laughs> well, I'll just finish up on the Hoosac. Um, they basically spent 25 years building this tunnel. It's a little bit on and off with financing and whatnot. Um, somewhere around halfway through the process, um, uh, the state of Massachusetts, which had a, basically was the main investor in this, and it was it was hurting them. Um, they wanted to speed it up, so what they decided to do is somewhere around the middle between the two ends was build a shaft down, and that way they could head out. Once that reached the down where the other tunnels would intercept, they could start going either way and get this thing speeded up, so basically the four different faces that they could be working on, and they thought that would be a great thing. So they built this central shaft. Eventually, it would be taller. That shaft was 1,028 feet deep, and it was uh, taller than the Empire State Building. Uh, wow. Amazing. And uh, and so the, the one interesting story about it is that uh, in October of 67, 1867-1867, <laughs> Over the top of the that central shaft, they had an elevator, and it was people working down there, and that's where they had their uh, uh, their sharpening sh- uh, shop for the drill bits. And uh, they had a fire in that building, and so it just totally uh, destroyed the building. And the building uh, sort of collapsed on one end, and all of these drill bits started going down the shaft, about 300 of them. And there was, uh, I think, 16 guys down at the bottom, 600 feet down. And here comes about 300 six-foot-long drill bits. <laughs> so um, that had to be interesting. Um, 
interesting part and, and about nowhere it to go. <laughs> yeah, and then all the, you know, all the wood and stuff of the burning building went down there, and uh, they had pumps going so the thing would fill up with water. You know, was, they sent a guy down there on a rope, and he said there was, you know, they were all dead and gone. Um, about six months later, the whole shaft fills up with water eventually, refills with water up to the surface, and there's a there's evidence of a raft that the survivors had built. And maybe there was only one or two of them, but uh, nonetheless, they all died down there. Uh, wow. Yeah, really amazing story. But the, the really amazing story is that eventually they got the thing built, and they did connect in the middle. And at the very last day, uh, around 1875, with they figured they had about six feet of between the two tunnels, okay? And they uh, they drove a little pilot hole, filled it full of nitroglycerin. They had all the dignitaries there way back with little temporary walls to keep them from getting blasted, and they blasted the thing open, and they connected the, the two ends of the tunnel. And then, of course, the first thing they do is mine that out a little more and get the surveyors in there. And uh, I don't know whether it's just baloney or what, but they check the line, and they're three-eighths of an inch off from one end wow. in eighteen. That's phenomenal. Yeah, it is phenomenal. And uh, uh, we don't know the truth of it all. <laughs> I'm sure there was a little bit of exaggeration, <laughs> but um, nonetheless, it was a pretty amazing tunnel, and it was, uh, uh, you know, a lot of the, the, the drilling, uh, the, the, the steel drill bits they created were uh, revolutionary, and they still use that technique today. Uh, the, a lot of the methods that they used, uh, uh, the way that they tunneled it out, are still used today. Uh, uh, one of the very first Otis elevators was used on this. Um, There's just a lot of uh, firsts on this particular one. So, And it was the longest tunnel in the United States until uh, oh, about 1825 or something like that. So um, it... it it actually paying for that tunnel cost the state of Massachusetts about one half of its budget every year for quite a while. If you can imagine that, wow. that's pretty amazing. Yeah, the year nineteen hundred, they ran about eighty-five to ninety trains through there daily. So this thing got some heavy use. So it's pretty amazing. Still in use. St- uh, still in use today. I went back. I just had to go see this thing. Uh, uh, it's supposedly haunted, one of the haunted places in America because um, something like, uh, what was it, 196 people? Yeah, 195 men died in there. Wow, well, about 96 actually. But, uh, yeah, pretty amazing. Um, well, speaking so, yeah, let me of li- that, Speaking of liabilities that come along. <laughs> yeah. you, were, you were telling me that about being an expert witness on, on yeah, the tunnel uh, project. So, uh, yeah, this was actually fairly recent within the last year. And so it was a tunnel project that another survey firm had done. And, uh, you know, if you're tunneling, number one, it's a dead-end survey. Uh, you got to really watch it. And you have to be just very conscientious. You have to use the best equipment you can possibly do. And you need to check and recheck and, and do everything you can. It, it's a, the the level of accuracy has to be much higher than if you're not in a tunnel, okay? 
and you're working in a dark, dank environment, and you have to be conscious of that too, and that could be affecting your instrument. And so in this particular case, uh, this other survey firm, um, it kind of, well, they, 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 end, they, they messed up on their survey, okay? And so uh, let's just say at the end, it was a one-way tunnel, and they were aiming for a shaft that was 2,000 feet away. And the idea was to, uh, the contractor already built kind of a low, uh, you know, an entry spot for the tunnel within that shaft, and they were supposed to hit that. And uh, as it turned out, they were uh, 14 inches off. And that's with today's technology, and it's only 2,000 feet. And, uh, you know, the, the problem, as it turned out to be, was um, when you were surveying through a tunnel, your control is on the side of the tunnel. Okay, You have to get it out of the way because there's trains running down below taking the waste away. You can't, you can't be there. So your, your, your instrument is on a bracket attached to the side of the tunnel. Um, those things tend to move a little bit. There's pressure and, and there's settlement, and they tend to warp, and so uh, everything's going to get affected. And you have to check it just constantly. Um, and when you get to that breakthrough point, boy, you, you need to check it uh, not just twice, but five, ten times. Make sure you're right. Because you're basically saying, okay, we only got five feet to break through. Uh, go right there. And in this case, they were off. And it turned out that, uh, you know, most of the people that were on the, the survey firm had on this project had never been on a tunnel project before. They were basically doing boundary line accuracy surveys inside a precision tunnel. Uh, big mistake. Um, and uh, there's some other mistakes that got made, but, but you know, that's the biggie. Um, when you're tunnel surveying, you just check and check everything, and, of course, you don't have any uh, anywhere to really check into, usually. A lot of times the two tunnel, the tunnel is aimed to meet in the middle, um, and uh, there's there, there shouldn't be any oops there. <laughs> there might be a little bit, but not much. Okay, you'll never be... 100% accurate, but uh, you just need to be sure that, that, you know, the word oops never enters the conversation there. So, Absolutely. Well, yeah. thinking, uh, talking about uh, work, and we got three minutes, yeah, three minutes left, um, talk to us just a little bit about what I call retunneling or opening up tunnels for bigger train cars these days. That, that seems to be happening a lot in older tunnels. Yes, it does, and we've worked on some of that. Um, yeah, so they they typically, uh, uh, well, in most cases, they're mountain tunnels, and they are uh, uh, they're rock, and so uh, uh, they use what they call a road header to to kind of grind out the 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 head of the you know the, the yeah the head of the tunnel uh, the ceiling, and uh, they want to determine how much that is. I've I've done some of this work. And uh, nowadays, a lot, most of that is done with lasers, okay? They're basically laser scanning, and then they, they apply the, uh, uh, the template that they want for the, uh, 
clearance, and it's usually because they're they're double height on the they now go double height on the on the rail cars on the uh, those uh, metal containers. Okay, they usually double stack them, and they just want the clearance. And so, uh, you know, you get your stationing in there, you do your scanning. A lot of that is just done on a rail car. Uh, you just put the scanner on a rail car, you scan it, uh, you apply your template that you want to that scanning, and then at any given point along the way, you just sort of uh, guide the construction people and go, okay, this much needs to go. Up here is two feet, and over here is a foot, and this far, and then you rescan it and see if they've kind of reached that, that point of clearance. We used to do it by just shooting, you know, with an instrument, not a, a scanner. Scanners have been a real boom. Uh, yeah. Actually, you talking about that just made me think about it. this conversation started out um, almost 300 years ago, <laughs> and and the technology they were using then and the technology we're using now, but the requirement for precise measurement and accuracy were kind of the same, if you think about it, I mean, you you needed that same level of of accuracy oh, yeah. and measurement then as you need now, and I guess that that makes up for a lot of the difference in in time that it takes. So, well, we're we're within our last minute minute of the show today, and certainly have had not enough time to cover this topic uh, as well as would 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 like to have done but i really appreciate you being here it's been enlightening for me and i'm sure it's been enlightening for the audience to uh to hear some of these stories and and i'm i'll have a whole nother idea now when i go to seattle next time (laughs) what's going on underneath the the city um particularly from the bus side that's the part of it i guess i had never really uh, let myself think about. So maybe I'll, one of these days I'll have to ride one of those buses just to see oh, what, yeah. what it's like, it. I suppose. But, yeah. but again, I, I really appreciate it. Uh, best to everybody back there and in the office. Uh, a lot of good friends there. So thanks for joining me today, Ben, and hopefully we can have you on again sometime soon. Well, thank you for having me. Enjoyed it. It's been great. Thanks. Take care. Okay. You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening.